Today's podcast is one that I have been looking forward to perhaps more than any in a long time, in part because our guest, Lauger, has done work on a topic that I have struggled with for a long, long time. A topic that I've struggled to understand because it should be central to the history of sovereign debt. And yet, other than a book by Kim Oosterlink, our wonderful historian friend in Belgium, and a couple of other important pieces of work by Elia Zhang and others, uh, there's just not much of an understanding. And Lauker's article in the American Journal of International Law, a place where I have never succeeded in publishing, but aspire to someday if the editors are listening, although I think they have blind submissions, which is probably why I keep failing, uh, is really eye-opening. Eye-opening for multiple reasons, uh, including the political science perspective uh, and a more realist perspective on uh, what went on. But another reason why this article is so timely, and we will not bother Lauger about this particular aspect of it since it's not in his article, but I, I think Mark and I are both interested, is the Soviet uh, or Russian default of the early 1900s results in a massive freezing of Russian overseas assets by the Western powers. And then there are heated debates about what should be done with those frozen assets. And, it, and that's very similar to what is going on today in terms of massive freezing of Russian assets and Western governments debating heatedly, literally every day in the financial press about what should be done. And I'm hoping at least at the end of this podcast, we'll come away with lessons from history and politics about it. Mark, any thoughts? Well, that's the obvious subtext and one that I'm excited to talk about. Although I think Lauga may tell us that we should be careful drawing too firm a, a set of inferences from these historical episodes. But the parallel is so interesting and so timely that it's kind of impossible for me not to not to think about it. But Lauga, maybe um maybe we can reserve that discussion for a little bit and ask you to give us a bit of insight into the paper. You and your co-author got uh, access to new archival materials, and uh, I'm I'm kind of interested to hear the backstory about how you got interested into this topic and where you wound up finding all of your uh, interesting historical sources. Thanks, Mark, and thanks, Mitu, for inviting me uh, today. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to 
discussed work that, uh, as you noted, is together with Eileen Denza. Um, and I'm new to this field. Um, uh, most of my work in the past um, focused mainly on investment treaty arbitration, the politics, the political economy of investment treaties. Uh, I'd focused a little bit on the emergence of the investment treaty regime and sort of the modern dispute resolution regime for investment protection. But uh, I'd never sort of done detailed work on resolving claims uh, in the period before the emergence of, of, of investment treaty arbitration. And I never worked on, 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 on bonds before and sort of the political economy of, 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 of sovereign debt and, and bondholder claims. Um, but the sort of so the backstory is that sort of there's sort of a growing interest, I think, from, from my side and some colleagues as well, and trying to find out, um, given, for instance, some of the controversies surrounding the current international regime for the protection of foreign investment, how these sorts of disputes were settled um, before uh, international courts and tribunals became so important as they are today. And there's some really great work in that field. Maurer, Jason Yaki, um, you two have done great work in that field as well. But I think sort of in general, it's fair to say that we don't know that much about how foreign investment disputes were actually resolved in practice during much of the Cold War, sort of after the age of empire, if you will, age of gunboats, and then before this sort of modern rise of tribunals. So I was sort of interested in, in exploring that. And this particular dispute is just very fascinating and it's extremely complex. Um, and so um, it was sort of a natural sort of focal point. Um, in addition to that, and probably more importantly in practice, was the fact that I had worked a little bit with Eileen in the past, um, and she happened to be the one who clenched the settlement with uh, 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 with the Soviets on behalf of the UK government in 1986. Um, so, if anyone were well placed uh, to uh, to to work on this, uh, it was uh, Eileen, as she was the one who negotiated the final. Uh, agreement. And so we decided to explore this sort of saga together that took years um, because it involved, as you noted, Mark, uh, compiling a mountain of archival sources. This was very complex, long negotiations taking place over almost 70 years. Um, so you can imagine that sort of the, the data material, if you will, was uh, quite significant. That's so amazing. I mean, your co-author was one of the key sources in some ways that that's just that's just pure gold that's fantastic so uh, might you give us sort of a nutshell of the story that you would tell of your project i mean it's such a it's such a mammoth project but you managed to write this short tight elegant piece i i your piece was recommended to me and to mark by two of the people we respect the most in the legal academy and in the practitioner world lee bukite and paul stephen both sent it to us and they are 
tough, tough critics, and they they sent it with the note saying, "You must read this." So, can you can you, if you had to boil down your story with Eileen, for people who haven't read this beautiful piece, how how would you tell the story? Well, the the starting point story in a nutshell is that uh, when the Bolsheviks took power, they inherited a mountain of debt from the Tsarist regime. Um, most of that debt had uh, come from the First World War that the Bolsheviks themselves opposed. But then there was also a separate part of that debt that was uh, sort of emerged because of the war against the Bolsheviks themselves uh, during the Russian Civil War. Either way, you had a mountain of public debt and repudiating that debt was a very important sort of economic pillar of the revolution along with expropriation. Uh, and so shortly after taking power, um, the Bolsheviks or Lenin repudiated the Tsarist debt. Um, and that uh, meant that uh, bondholders um, amongst the allies, particularly France, but also the UK and a number of other allies um, had very significant uh, sort of claims against the, 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 the new Bolshevik regime. And um, they obviously complained to their governments and urged them to, to, to press for those claims when engaging with the new Bolshevik regime. I think in a nutshell, the paper tries to understand the political economy or the competing objectives that the Russian government had on the one hand when it comes to how it would deal with these sorts of claims, and, but also given that it was a paper focusing on the UK, spoke, focusing specifically on the competing objectives that the UK had in trying to, uh, uh, to resolve these very significant claims vis-a-vis -vis the new Bolshevik regime. Uh, and we trace up through the, the 70 years, almost 70 years of negotiations, which became ever more complex how these different uh, interests were balanced out against each other and uh, whether that was in the context of geopolitics, whether it was in context of trade or whether it was in the context of um, claims that the Russians or the Bolsheviks uh, put forth against the UK, right? So counterclaims brought against the UK. So these sorts of competing considerations had to be assessed up through the Cold War when trying to figure out on both sides how to deal with this mega dispute that uh, uh, hanging over their over their relationship, I think that's sort of how I might summarize it. And then the way I think of it, uh, there are these two episodes that feed into each other that the paper covers. Uh, one having to do with assets that were in English banks and that had been transferred there by the Baltic states before being annexed by the Soviets. Uh, and those presented some particular complications. Uh, and as I understand it, uh, sort of really the, the, the challenging dynamic there is that it was hard for the UK government to view those as assets that might be available to satisfy claims of uh, UK citizens against the Soviets when you 
don't want to recognize the Soviet government as sort of the de jure government of of those annexed states. Do I do I have that right? And then can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I I think from the paper I get the very clear sense that the ultimate resolution of what to do with these Baltic assets plays an important role in thinking about the the later claims against the the Soviet assets. Yes, definitely. So, and this is one of the reasons why. It got so complex because one thing was that we had these very significant claims involving uh, uh, sort of Tsarist assets also in the UK, but also all the claims involving bonds and other sorts of claims uh, going back to sort of uh, uh, the revolution. But then when the Baltic states got annexed by the Soviet Union, you had this large number of additional claims that were sort of lumped together in these discussions. They were separate, but for all practical purposes and politically, they were sort of lumped together as part of one big problem of how do you deal with with sort of debt and investment claims with, with the Soviet Union. And the Baltic claims were interesting in the sense that, as you said, Mark, um, when uh, the annexation uh, was sort of forthcoming, uh, the gold of the Baltic states was sent to the Bank of England for safekeeping, right? For safekeeping. So the Bank of England uh, said, we will keep your gold safe during the period under which you're under sort of Soviet occupation, right? But what ultimately happened was that to settle all the claims involving the Baltic annexation, the UK took that gold, they essentially expropriated that gold as part of that 1968 settlement that the Labour, then gay Labour government uh, initiated as part of a broader, I think, deal with the Soviet Union to, 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 to secure a trade agreement as well and broader friendly diplomatic relations at the time. And they used that gold to settle claims uh, involving uh, sort of investors that have been in the Baltics, but also a number of claims that had nothing to do with the Baltic states. And, and this was extremely controversial politically. It exploded in the House of Commons, in particular in the House of Lords. And as you noted, Mark, and we sort of laid this out in the paper, it had some very awkward implications in terms of the extent to which the UK government, by using that gold to settle claims having nothing to do with the Baltic states might implicitly have sort of recognized uh, Soviet jurisdiction over, over the Baltics. There was significant to and fro over this uh, amongst legal advisors uh, that we trace in the paper. Um, but sort of the final part of that story didn't actually end in 1968. It ended when the Baltics regained independence and John Major then Paid, repaid the Baltic states for uh, uh, for what he and many others saw was what he calls of a smear of dishonor that was that was undertaken by the by the uh, by the British government in 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 1968. This, I mean, to me, this this is well known. I think an episode from for many international lawyers. I'm not an international lawyer myself, but I have to admit this was a surprise to me because in this. In this sort of paper, this sort of large research project uh, about presumably Soviet breach of international law or presumed breach of international law in the context of the, of the default and expropriations, a large part of our uh, sort of materials 
was actually about whether and to what extent the UK breached international law in the context A of the uh, the Russian Civil War, where the UK uh, stayed back and intervened, and secondly, through its taking of of the Baltic assets to settle claims uh, involving the uh, uh, involving sort of Soviet disputes as well. So, can we talk about that other fascinating part of this story, which is the claims regarding the UK? intervention in the civil war in the soviet union uh or russia or uh, i don't know what we should call it at that time uh, uh, but i i confess even though i have spent some time in international law i had no idea that at that time period one could bring a claim against a western power, especially a Western imperial power like the UK, for interve intervening in the domestic affairs of some other country. I mean, now I realize that there is at least some suggestion in the treatises, but the idea that you could say, hey, you owe us money because you illegally intervened was completely new to me. And I, I read that. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know. And apparently this, this had actually some real merit in the view of uh, the UK legal authorities, who I think of as very conservative, stodgy, uh, you know, what, whatever other term I'm, I might use, you've probably come across them, but whenever they're all called sir, blah, 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 and, you know, they speak with snooty accents. So um, I, I don't see them as accepting in uh, frivolous legal claims. No, and uh, I agree. I mean, it was a complete surprise to me as well, to be honest. Um, sort of the backstory was that after the revolution, when all the debts, they tried to resolve all the debts, uh, there was, in short, sort of multilateral discussions taking place in Genoa in 1922. Uh, the Allied powers came to the meeting saying, we want compensation for all these Tsarist claims. And the Soviets said, or sort of the, 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 the Russian government said, well, if you want to talk about compensation, let's talk about compensation because we have a counterclaim that is double what you're suggesting. And that involves the allied intervention in the Russian civil war and all the damage that it caused even after armistice in 1918, right? So, um, uh, uh, so Russia said, well, if, if, if you generally want to talk about compensation, we need to think about not just your case involving all the bondholder claims and, and investment disputes, but also uh, what we perceive to be a legitimate claim for, for your intervention in our civil war. Um, now, at that meeting, not surprisingly, the Allied told Litvinov uh, uh, um, from, 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 from the Russian regime to essentially take a hike, right? That there was no way they were going to engage on, uh, uh, in such what they saw to be sort of a, a ludicrous argument. But then, and this was sort of really quite a remarkable moment for me, we found this note in the archives from 1924, where Sir Cecil Hurst, who was then the foreign legal advisor to the, uh, to the UK government and later became a judge and then president of the Permanent Court of International Justice, right? So not, not just anybody. 
he wrote a short note essentially suggesting that the Russians were right, that there was no legal basis uh, for the UK intervention in the Russian civil war, particularly after Germany uh, sort of had, um, well, after armistice in 1918, right? Wow. And it's just remarkable. And, um, and the same conclusion was then reached many, many years later by my co-author uh, Eileen Denser when she was in the Foreign Office Legal Advisor's office um, she didn't know about Sir Cecil Hurst's conclusion from the time, but she essentially, she was asked to, to walk through these sorts of arguments that the Soviets kept bringing up, and she reached the same conclusion, that the UK arguably breached what was customary international law and intervention in foreign conflicts at the time. Now, this was never admitted publicly by the UK, right? Um, but it was very much at the forefront of the negotiators' minds because this was a mega mega <laughs> claim if we sort of take inflation into account i can't quite believe the i can't quite remember the figures but it's something in the vicinity of you know 20 25 30 billion pounds in the 1980s if this was to actually be taken seriously right uh, and so that was quite important uh, for for the final settlement um, and I think also for our assessments on the balance of of the settlement between the UK and and the Soviets. So I think this I, I found this part of the paper really really interesting, like me too did. And I'm not really being an international lawyer. I am struggling figuring out what to make of it. So it, pairing the Baltic episode and the later. Uh, settlement of the claims to Soviet assets, I, it seems to me that in the former case, you detail UK lawyers making very clever, very rigorous arguments designed to justify the use kind of directly or indirectly, the use of those Baltic assets to satisfy claims of UK citizens against the Soviets. Uh, you know, and it's it's in doubt whether they can do that, but you have a lot of lawyer ingenuity that's being devoted to to basically justifying what the UK wants to do pragmatically. And then in the later settlement, it seems as if the lawyers involved kind of quickly reached the conclusion that the Soviet claims for illegal intervention in the civil war are themselves valid uh, it kind of without any real uh, kind of intellectual pushback against that conclusion and so in part i want to read that as even stronger evidence that the claim under international law was perceived as valid in the uk the, the soviet claim for unlawful intervention because you know after all the uh, the lawyers had been so creative at you know, finding a, an escape valve, if you will, if you will, working their way around international law in the former context involving the Baltic. So, so maybe we should infer that you know this claim is just so obviously valid that there's no point in pushing back against it. But I'm wondering if the pragmatic push for a settlement of those Soviet claims kind of means that there was no real incentive to 
dispute the conclusions that the lawyers had reached about legality. And I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what we should make of the fact that these UK lawyers endorsed the Soviet claim against them and whether we should really infer that that's evidence that the claim was viewed as valid or whether we should infer, infer that the UK had very pragmatic interest in just getting a deal done. That's a, I mean, that's a great question. I think the, um, the bird's eye view sort of uh, of 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 the negotiations and also around the episodes of the final negotiations in when the deal was clinched was exactly as you laid out mark that there was a pragmatic political sort of geoeconomic consideration that um these uh, it would be helpful to settle these claims uh, given sort of renewed relations between moscow and london um and the discussions around the final settlement um, uh, didn't delve in in that much detail to legal doctrine, basically because the sort of contours of an agreement had more or less been on the horizon since 1939. Um, there was a proposal in 1939 for how these claims could be settled, a mutual waiver, the UK uses frozen assets, um, to uh, 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 to pay UK claimants, um, and that was essentially it. That was suggested in 1939, but for various reasons, it didn't go forward. It was a pragmatic um, uh, solution that was ultimately the one they reached in 1986. And there was never, and I think this is important to stress, maybe because we don't have access to the Russian archives. This is an important caveat, but. Uh, with that caveat in mind, there was never that much engagement on legal doctrine in general between the parties, right? So it, it, over 70 years of negotiations, I would personally, perhaps naively, have thought that um, uh, there would be extensive um, discussions over finer points of, of sort of legal nuance, for instance, in the context of odious debts, or on this point, on what was actually the customary international law on foreign conflict. Um, but there wasn't that much. Um, there was some uh, within within the UK Foreign Office Legal Advisors sort of office on, on the intervention claims. But again, this wasn't sort of um, uh, a, a major uh, uh, effort to sort of resolve these sorts of legal questions, perhaps because there are no international tribunals sort of that that were were involved. But this was ultimately a politically driven, pragmatic settlement where uh, uh, legal doctrine played important roles, but never really drove, I think, um, the outcome or pace of negotiations. Does that make sense? Alas, it does. It does but, yes. <laughs> but I don't. Sorry, I don't just... like it that law <laughs> no. is so so irrelevant in politics. Seems to trump, especially with these truly major uh, dispute resolution context. That this sort of I think of a law as being so important for the resolution of every little claim. But then you have this situation where there are just thousands of claims on either side and you just have to do a pragmatic resolution and 70 years later when tempers have subsided and emotions 
uh, have quietened down. It's it's a political compromise. That 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 would be, I think, what uh, my uh, politics oriented colleagues yeah. would say. And I don't. I I get the sense that that is that is what your view is. And I know you you don't necessarily want to talk about Ukraine, but. I, I do wonder, and maybe just Mark will uh, respond to this, but I, if you have off-the-cuff thoughts, I do wonder whether that's what will happen with all of this Ukraine-Russia stuff, that it will take many decades for reparations claims and the counterclaims to be resolved, and in the end it will be all politics and not... Uh, not about the international law of... Right. I, I think I'm, I'm going to skirt the Ukraine angle, but I, 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 I think it's worth pointing out, though, that this wasn't unusual, right? So lump sum agreements negotiated diplomatically right, to resolve lo a large number of claims. That was sort of the main mode to settle international claims during most of sort of the Cold War, right? So... Um, we have Lilik and Weston and others who've sort of traced the the, the large number of, of lump sum agreements and argued, I think, quite persuasively that while they were important for, uh, for international law and they were negotiated uh, based on international legal principles and drafted by careful international lawyers, um, they were, of course, the result of political, pragmatic, non-legal considerations uh, whether and to what extent they were concluded and when they were concluded, that was not, I think, unique uh, in this case. Um, we saw many other examples of, of, of sort of lump sum agreements settling uh, uh, post-war expropriation and other sorts of uh, disputes uh, during this period. Um, and yeah, that was very political. But I think one of the one of the interesting, I think, takeaways from at least from my perspective, um, um, and maybe with my baggage, is to try and sort of assess the outcome in light of um, how equivalent claims may be uh, uh, as, uh, sort of addressed today. And this sort of, I guess, goes a little bit to your to your Ukraine angle, right? But sort of my question, we don't include that in the in the paper, but I think it might be worthwhile reflecting on, right? So if we think about if the current infrastructure for the res resolution of investor state disputes through international arbitration had been available for Russian revolution claims, right? If that was available at the time and uh, uh, British investors did not have to convince the British government to press for their uh, for the claims, but they could do it themselves through international arbitration. I think there's a couple, sort of a couple of questions that I, are, strike me as interesting, right? So first of all, it strikes me as interesting whether and to what extent a tribunal today would really have considered the massive and arguably legitimate counterclaim of the Russians when assessing whether and to what extent British claimants were owed compensation, right? I think it's to the extent that there would be jurisdiction, and these are all complex discussions, but to the extent, hypothetically, some of these claims could have been pursued through the mechanism we have today, um, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that investors would have gotten much more than the very limited conversation, uh, compensation they got uh, uh, out of the lump sum agreement. But it's not necessarily clear to me 
that that would have been fair to the extent that that compensation had not adequately considered counterclaims the way that the the balanced uh, 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 approach to the settlement taken by UK uh, lawyers uh, 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 did in in the 80s. So that's the first question. The second question is, um, you're right, it's sort of, I mean, I think to many it sort of strikes them as uncomfortable that politics somehow can drive these sorts of settlements. But on the other hand, um, I think from a political perspective, from the UK government's perspective, it's not entirely clear to me that it would necessarily have been more beneficial at this time if a small group of aggrieved bondholders could have pursued billion pound claims against uh, the Soviet government um, during periods in which it was really important for the UK um, government to negotiate trade agreements with the Soviet Union and to generally uh, sort of maneuver very delicate so geopolitical relations obviously during the Cold War. So I think one of the open questions that I think are sort of interesting questions to me is sort of the extent to which the politicization, if you will, of this mode of dispute resolution through the lump sum instrument was necessarily only a bad thing. And we can probably have a long discussion about that. But I think when we look at, at the outcome of the agreement that tries to strike a balance between these many different interests involved, governmental, political, economic interests, and compare that to mechanisms that focus mainly and occasionally exclusively on the interests of one group of aggrieved parties, namely investors. I think there's an open question around whether um, when we look back at how these sorts of disputes and settlements were reached, there might not also be something to learn. So there's so much in this article. I I, I really can't recommend it enough to our readers. There's so, so many really rich aspects to it. And I, I want to kind of lead us towards the conclusion by asking about one that I know a bunch of our listeners are going to be interested in, even if it's very sovereign debt in the weedsy. Um, since the repudiation of the czarist debt is one of the kind of classic examples that comes up in discussions of odious debt, in fact, in some ways, it's the foundational event in of the origin story of odious debt as a legal doctrine. And yet uh, the Soviets were in a really kind of complicated position when it came to sort of balancing their position that these debts were invalid while also somewhat inconsistently potentially asserting a claim to uh Czarist assets that were uh, that were being held in UK banks, and I, I don't even have a specific question about that, but I wanted to invite you to just give a little bit of that context because yeah. I know many of our listeners are going to be interested in it. It it was, I mean, I think it was sort of a, an interesting argument, and I think to many counterintuitive argument that was being put forward by the Soviets through large parts of this saga, right? That they were not successes to the Tsarist government when it came to the debts, right? but they were successes to the Tsarist government when it came to their assets. Now, we tried over the course of years to find justifications presented by uh, the Soviet teams for this sort of 
quite awkward argument and never found it. And um, this was after scrolling through mountains of archival files, at least in the way they presented these claims to the UK side, they never developed that argument. And that was, I think it was very frustrating for some of the UK lawyers. Um, and it was surprising, at least to me. And I think more broadly, one of the things that was surprising to me was that, um, and this is coming as a as uh, as someone who's new to this field, but when I read parts of the secondary literature on this, there was sort of some commentators that suggested that you know the Soviet Union they presented sort of this coherent and very carefully crafted alternative international legal doctrine around odious debts uh, rooted in sophisticated and and sort of engaged legal uh, 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 argument. But at least from the 70 years of negotiations with the UK uh, over these odious debts, or supposedly odious debts that, that we scroll through, those arguments were never really put forward, right? It And again, with the caveat that we didn't have access to the Russian archives, our conclusion was that from the Russian side, this notion of odious debt was used much more as sort of an ad hoc opportunistic lever for the purpose of some transactional bargain rather than some carefully crafted legal principle. But again, we might be wrong on that because we don't have access to the sort of the, to the Russian to the Russian uh, side of things from their archives. But I think. I would perhaps have expected there to be more if this was such an important question of international legal doctrine from from the Russian side, but we didn't find anything, if anything at all. Odious debts as atmospherics. That that <laughs> that, that that that's how I would I would boil it down to. Uh, but Lauger, thank you so much. I should I realize I made an. Uh, goof at the beginning. I, I should have mentioned the name of this wonderful article that we keep men keep talking about and saying that people should read, and we'll put it in the show notes. But it's settling Russia's imperial and Baltic debts, uh, written with Eileen Denza, and Lauger's last name is uh, Paulson. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, and I hope this is just the first of many articles in this area of sovereign debt that you're going to write. We we both enjoyed it so much and learned an immense amount from you. And I'm also glad that through this process, we have gotten to know you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for uh, coming on our podcast. Here, here. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate uh, you inviting me. I'm I'm new to this field. Uh, I learned a lot through the process, and I've learned a lot from from Eileen and and from your works as well. So I I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. And as I noted before we started, this was my first ever podcast, uh, and I was very nervous when going on. But I really enjoyed your your virtual company here. So so thanks for 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 taking the time and 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 um, uh, making sort of listeners aware of, of our work. I, I really appreciate it. 